Some time back, we were knocked out by a piece in The New Yorker from writer Margaret Talbot. It was titled The Screen Test. It made us want to talk to the author. It so happens we've been well disposed to the Talbot clan, having spoken to Brother David on three occasions. While David Talbot focuses on deep politics, Sister Margaret wrote a book chronicling the life and times of the family patriarch, actor Lyle Talbot. The name Lyle Talbot should ring a bell if you're a movie fan. He hit the silver screen in 1932 in that classic style of Hollywood mythology, a talent from small-town America who comes west to try his luck in movies and makes it. This actually happened to a few fortunate souls. They took a chance despite the ridiculous odds and became movie stars. Lyle Talbot, unlike his contemporaries such as Spencer Tracy and Humphrey Bogart, did not sustain a level of stardom that gets you a retrospective on Turner classic movies, which is too bad. But first-tier star or not, Lyle Talbot did have a long, productive, and interesting career. Its ups and downs and the many backstories surrounding them are outlined in Margaret Talbot's book, The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. We're delighted to have the opportunity to discuss these stories and to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Margaret Talbot. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Can we go back to what American entertainment was like when, you're, when your dad fell into show business? This is, of course, before radio, let alone TV, and even before movies. Vaudeville acts and circuses came to the nation's towns, and a, a population somewhat starved for entertainment supported an army of traveling performers. It was that era that really kind of fascinated me first um, about my dad's story because it just seemed like this way into what, you know, the cultural critic Grail Marcus calls the weird old America, um, <laughs> which is a phrase I've always loved. Um, and, yeah, he was, my dad was born in 1902, so, and he was born in a small town called Brainerd in Nebraska and really got the kind of itch to run away join the circus or, you know, be be an entertainer, be a traveling entertainer. And there were all these opportunities then because, as you say, you know, small towns were kind of starved for entertainment. It really was a case where, you know, the traveling players would come to town, put on, um, you know, plays for a week or so, kind of bedazzle the locals and then move on. Um, and my father actually got his start as a um, working in, in uh, magic and, and hypnotist shows. Um, hypnotism was like I found in doing this book a really uh, big deal in the um, in the teens in America, and um, people were quite fascinated with the powers of, of of hypnotism and kind of you know as a way into the unconscious mind. So it was almost like the unconscious was being discovered at a high level you know, by Freud and William James, and then at the sort of popular level um, by, by hypnotists who said that they could, you know, gain access to people's unconscious minds and motives. And um, so it was a form of entertainment, but it had this resonance to it. Um, and he was, a, he was a hypnotist assistant. That was his first um, sort of big break in, in showbiz. Well, I, I love when you, when you told stories that I guess your dad related much later in life about that era and how he... He, he wished he could have been mesmerized by, by his boss, but actually he never really was, so he had to act hypnotized. That's true. That's kind of how he learned to act because he, yeah, he was meant to be being hypnotized. He was the shill in the audience <laughs> who was um, called up on stage, and, um, you know, the hypnotist was meant to demonstrate his um, his powers on him, and he um, just could never could never do it. I guess some people are more susceptible to hypnotism than others and didn't work on him. Um, but, yeah, one of the things he did was... Um, 
there was a trick where he would have rocks broken off his chest. He was meant to be in this kind of deep sleep, and he was suspended between these two chairs, and um, the hypnotist, and this was a sort of a classic trick, I guess, would, would place a rock on his chest and then call up someone from the audience who was meant to be you know, strong, like the local blacksmith or something, and they would, you know, tap the rock and break it, and he was meant to be, you know, my father in this case was meant to be asleep the entire time. <laughs> so that was that was his that was his first uh, his first gig, um, and you know, he always said, oh, it's it was you know it was very very safe, you know, because you were suspended between the chairs, your body would kind of give, and you know, and and, and it all I was never hurt or anything. But when I was researching the book, I found there were a lot of you know unfortunate accidents that occurred when hypnotists were doing this particular trick, or also another one, the human plank, where the hypnotist would walk on the on the uh, subject's chest, and uh, there were a lot of stories actually in the papers about people, you know, having well dying these way this way in some cases. Well, we should note that, that back in this era of this sort of entertainment, the populace maybe didn't quite trust traveling entertainers with, with perhaps good cause. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's true that, you know, I mean, um, my father, you know, I know as a, as a young man, you know, he was a handsome guy. He was in his teens and 20s, and he was, um, yeah, I think romancing some local girls and you know leaving them behind when he moved on and uh he was he was a lovely guy but he really couldn't resist that and um so i think yeah I, and and i think also just kind of bringing this sense of the outside world and the modern world and actually a lot of these um traveling theater companies at that time a lot of them were run by um husband wife combinations and the women were kind of strong strong people i mean they had careers of their own they continued to act after they had children sometimes when they were you know pregnant theatrical actresses were um kind of some of the first successful career women in the united states so I think you know it brought this whiff of of the city and um, and and sexuality and but also of kind of possibilities for women um, to some of these to some of these smaller towns. Well, your 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 dad was a handsome dog in his youth. In 1920, gets involved mm-hmm. in acting troupe, uh, the first of many, and he demonstrates some ability up on the sca- stage. But it gets noticed that his looks are having a happy effect on the females in the audience, and that that really, I guess, really helps his stage career. <laughs> yes, it did. I mean, I think you know, in the late 19th century um, and early 20th century, a lot of theater actors. Um, you know, weren't necessarily good-looking in the way we now, you know, expect movie actors to be, you know, because of close-ups and the fact that we're, you know, our expectations have changed. And so I think um, this was the era, like in the in the teens and 20s, where it started to be more like you were meant to be an alluring person as well. You know, you're meant to have um, personality and charisma and, and, and ideally be good-looking. So um, my father kind of you know, benefited from that and that he was, you know, a guy who, um, it wasn't just that he had like, you know, a, a great sort of acting chops. In fact, his acting chops were fine, but not brilliant. And he, you know, it wasn't just a matter of having a great voice like a lot of actors had had in the 19th century, you know, and being these sort of oratund um, kind of, you know, uh, characters. He was a good looking young guy and, and he played, you know, the juvenile lead in a lot of these plays and so yeah people could kind of you know this was like starting to be the era too of sort of fangirls and fanboys who would come to the 
come to the stage door entrance, you know, stage door Johnny's and want to meet the actors. And uh, so, yeah, he benefited from all of that. Well, let's talk about the fulcrum, I guess you'd call it in your dad's life, the one you chronicled in the New Yorker essay. It's 1932. Your dad's in a play in Dallas. Scouts in Hollywood are combing the country looking for, you know, fresh faces that can withstand a close-up on the big screen. Uh, mm-hmm. They really want theater people because the motion pictures have moved into being talkies. Uh, your dad gets spotted by a scout, invites him to Hollywood for a screen test, and, and, and what happens next is just such a remarkable story, and I, I, I hope you can tell us about how he, he seemingly blew his big chance, but luckily did not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he was called out, and he had a screen test at Warner Brothers, and he was, of course, very nervous, um, but, you know, this was a, a big break, and um, he had done a play called Louder, Please, um, and it had acted in it recently in Dallas, and he had a good part in it. He was like a young press agent in it and kind of a front-page kind of role, a lot of fast patter, and he thought he did it very well, and he thought, okay, well, for my screen test, I'll do a scene from this play, Louder, Please. Um, and so he, he did it, and he thought it went very well, and um, after it was over, the cameraman who was shooting the screen test came over and said, was that from a play called Louder, Please? And my father was very proud, and he said, yes, how did you know? And he said, uh, that play is really, like, taboo on this lot. Like, I, I kind of can't believe you did that. And my father was like, why? You know what? And he said, you know, the character in that play, who's the sort of villain of the play, who's, you know, made relentless fun of, is very you know, is, is based on Daryl Zanuck, is Daryl Zanuck, essentially, who was then the head of production at Warner Brothers. And so it was basically this, you know, parody of, um, that had been written by someone who had worked at Warner Brothers, and my father had no idea. He, he had no clue about, you know, sort of Hollywood ins and outs and intrigues, and um, he was a young man from the provinces. And so he said, oh, can we do it over again? And the cameraman said, no, I got somebody else coming in. Sorry, kid, you're out of luck. So he went home, you know, feeling basically devastated and called the agent who had brought him out there, a lovely man named Arthur Landau, who was Gene Harlow's agent. And Landau said to him, well, okay, you know, maybe we can take you to one of the other studios, but apparently was secretly thinking, okay, that's the end for this guy, you know. There was, though, a very lucky turn of events, which um, was that when the um, screen tests were being shown that afternoon, and Zanuck was looking at them, and other people from production um, were just watching them, as they sometimes did. A director named William Wellman was there. And uh, Wellman was this um, kind of notorious tough guy who'd been a, been a flyer in, uh, in World War One, and he was, you know, profane, kind of a man's man. And um, he was watching, and he saw, you know, Lyle, my father, doing this part and thought, you know, great, he's really like sticking it to the man, you know, so thought he had done this on purpose. So he um, he said to Zanuck, I want that guy, not because he thought anything particularly of my father's acting, but because he thought he was like a, you know, ballsy guy. And so um, Zanuck said he was in a good mood that day. For some reason, this didn't, you know, bother him as much as, you know, you would have expected. He kind of went with Wellman's attitude and said, okay, sure, you can have him. So later on, my father's first uh, movie was with uh, was with Wellman, and Wellman, you know, kept coming up to him saying like, "Lyle, you know, you are you are something else. I, you know, you actors from the theater, you know, good for you. You know, you really stuck it to that son of a bitch." And my father, who was this kind of sweet, sincere, wet behind the ears guy from Nebraska, was like, 
I had no idea. And, you know, I came out here to Hollywood to do the screen test. I didn't have, you know, a penny to my name. I, was, I would never have done this on purpose, you know. But Wellman would never believe him. He just all his, you know, they did several movies together afterwards, and every time he would say, he would just chuckle to himself when he saw my dad, you know, so thinking he was his kind of guy, you know, um, a rebel. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great story. Well, it's a hell of a deal. You know, your, your dad gets a... Con- he gets a, he's, he's now got a contract with Warner Brothers. He's working with you know, William Wellman, the guy that wins the first Oscar for Best Picture as a director. I mean, That's right, for Wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's, he's getting a lot of work with famous names. I mean, talk about starting at the top. Yeah, you know, he was really lucky. I mean, and he really felt his luck. I mean, he really appreciated that. He, and that was a charming thing about him. Like, he just realized, you know, this doesn't happen to everybody. I'm kind of charmed, and I, you know, and I am sort of own that and appreciate it. So his first movies were with, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Carol Lombard and Betty Davis, and he was under contract at Warner Brothers. Of course, it was that era where they were just pumping out movies, and he did a quite a number of them. And it was the Depression and, of course, people suffering in the rest of the country and the movie industry doing comparatively quite well. And, you know, being in Hollywood in this kind of magical colony, he thought he'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, <laughs> this, was, this was amazing for him. Yeah. Let's talk about this, this exact era. It's quite a pivotal time in movie culture. People might think that you know, those films from the 30s are kind of dull and corny, but they obviously haven't seen what went on before the industry really sat down to self-censor. There's some changes about 1934 that really altered what audiences were seeing on the screen. Changes lasted for decades, but, but, and you know there was a lot of ta- safe and, and tame topics, but th- these pre-code movies are a different, different story. Yeah, they really are, and I um, was not that familiar with them when I uh, first started the research for the book because a lot of my father's early movies were made in that period, like 1930 to 1934, and when I was growing up, they weren't even really showing those movies on TV because they were considered to be kind of vulgar or racy. And, yeah, what happened is there was this production code that was technically in effect um, that the movie industry had agreed to, had agreed to sort of police itself so that it wouldn't be subject to actual federal government censorship, which was always kind of being threatened. Um, so they had agreed um, to kind of clean up their act by signing on to this production code. And it was partly as a result of um, kind of protests over and reaction to um, Hollywood in the 20s, not only what was going on on screen, but these kind of scandals in Hollywood, like um, Fatty Arbuckle, uh, who was, um, you know, a comedian who was accused of or causing the death of a woman who came to a wild party he had in the San Francisco hotel room, and uh, there were some drug use scandals and others, another another murder of the director William Desmond Taylor. So there was a sense that Hollywood was this kind of, you know, out of control Sodom and Gomorrah, and also that some of the movies were, you know, had nudity, and this was in the silent era. And other things that people were, you know, there were there were League of Decency kind of protests about, and uh, protests from 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 people in Congress and so on. Under those protests, the the um, the movie industry adopted this code and brought in this guy Will Hayes, um, who had been Postmaster General, to kind of you know clean up the place. But it, initially, the producers um, in that early 30s period just weren't really abiding by the code, and the code you know was written up and it said things like it forbid 
swearing and nudity and obscenity, and but also um, depictions of adultery that seem to make it not uh, something that would be punished um, and uh, seem to treat it lightly or uh, actually um, being disrespectful to um, the American judicial system or to religious figures. I mean, it had all kinds of sort of political slash moral attitudes written into it. And so they were ignoring this as best they could, the Hollywood producers in the early 30s. And so in that period, there are movies that come out that are really kind of interesting and that depict things that would not really be mentioned in movies after the code started being enforced in 1934 for many years until maybe like the early 60s, mid-60s, when the production code was finally dropped and replaced by the rating system that we have now. I, I think the movies are fascinating from that from that little era, and they, they've, they've been kind of rediscovered, and there are these you know, pre-code film festivals now, and uh, you know, like the Castro Theater in San Francisco just had this great series, and then TCM will run, you know, has, has put out these forbidden Hollywood collections of uh, DVDs that have a lot of movies from that era. Well, yeah, earlier this month at the Castro, uh, they, in fact, screened your favorite among your dad's pre-code efforts, Three in a Match. Uh, I'm pleased to say I was in attendance, and, and, and yeah, I was, I was surprised at how racy it was. It's got adultery, with your dad being the one inducing the wife to stray, no less, and uh, alcohol mm-hmm. abuse, cocaine use, uh, a shocking child kidnapping. It's a surprisingly uh, modern film. Yeah, it really is. And um, and the, the the other thing that I love about these movies, especially the Warner Brothers movies of that era, is that they're really fast-paced. They're short. That movie is, I think, 64 minutes or something, and it just packs a lot in. And so you think of, like, older movies sometimes as being kind of dull or, or you know, some of them can be, can be kind of stagey or long. Or, but these are just, you know, this rapid-fire dialogue um, and kind of rapid-fire pacing overall, and so they kind of hold up to our current shorter attention spans yeah. <laughs> kind of well. And movies in later eras, including like the 70s, were often much longer, and Warner Brothers especially was known as being the studio that was um, a little cheap, and so they would try and like make, <laughs> make shorter movies, and they loved like the urban kind of energy, you know, they made a lot of the great gangster movies, Scarface and Little Caesar and movies like that, and so... You know, they're kind of known for that. Or a lot of movies about journalism, like yeah. you know, the front page. And that scene lent itself to that to that pacing and that energy. And depending upon the writers, what a concept. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I understand one of your nie- I think it's one of your nieces or nephews posted an invite to that Castro event and said, uh, come see Grandpa get slapped around by Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I know. That was great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my nephew, um, Joe Talbot, who is um, my brother David's son, who is himself a, a filmmaker who is working on a film now um, called uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk great. about Bogart, actually, because uh, your dad's fate and, and Bogart's were a bit intertwined. Uh, Bogart's big breakout role was the petrified forest, but that role was originally supposed to have gone to your dad. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, my dad was in several... Um, uh, uh, movies with Bogart early on when Bogart had just been signed at Warner Brothers and so had my dad and um, 
So he's in Three on a Match. He's in a movie called Big City Blues, where I think he also gets slapped around by Bogart. <laughs> and um, it is interesting to see Bogart as this. I don't know if you had this reaction to him, but um, in this movie, but you know, he's very young in it. But he really does kind of light up the screen and steal the the, the picture a little bit. I mean, he's really sinister. He plays a really sinister role yeah. in this in this Three on a Match. Um, I mean, you can tell. I think that he. I I think anybody could tell that he's kind of a breakout star. But he was not treated that way by the studio initially, and they actually dropped his contract, um, did not renew his contract. And so he went back to, Bogart went back to New York and was in the, um, was in the play of Petrified Forest with Leslie Howard on Broadway. The studio signed Leslie Howard and wanted to bring him back out to make Petrified Forest as a movie. And Howard said, okay, but you have to bring Bogart out, too. So my father had been lined up to play that part, and then and then they brought Bogart out to play it instead. My father was surprised to see him back on the set. Um, and, you know, the studio having, some of the studio people having kind of a short memory, some of them were like, oh, you know, we've, he's a new guy. He's brand new. He's a new talent. <laughs> and my father said, no, he was here a couple of years ago. He made several movies with me. And, you know, Bogart did have this attitude of sort of, which served him well, of kind of like, if this is it for me and they're not going to take me, I'll, I'll try it again, but if it doesn't work out, screw them, I'll go back and do theater. And that gave him a certain freedom, I think, in his acting. Well, uh, like Bogart, your dad kind of ran into contract trouble. He lost his contract with, with Warner Brothers, and perhaps he lacked, as you mentioned, some of that quality that big stars possess, but without a doubt, one thing that did not help him was being one of the original 21 founding members of the Screen Actors Guild, which did not earn him any favor with studio heads, but it did help him make uh, make history. I gather you always suspected that, that that cost him dearly in getting starring roles, but you point out he was pretty philosophical about it. Yeah, and I think it probably did play some part because, you know, it's funny to think about now in a way, but the studios were so opposed to unionization by the actors, by the writers, by the directors. They would send studio spies around to the early meetings of the Screen Actors Guild founders. And a lot of the other founders were older actors. They weren't they weren't leading men or in line to be leading men. And um, so my father was, um, and I think he was the only one under contract at Warner Brothers who hmm. was one of the founders. And so he was, and he was put under pressure. I mean, you know, people working for the studio heads would come to him and say, you know, you don't need this, and um, why are you doing this, and be kind of, you know, a little threatening. And you know, many actors have recalled in telling the stories of their early involvement have told those kind of stories too. So it didn't do him any favors. And I think it was a combination of things. But I think it's probably right that it that it, you know, if it didn't blacklist him, it did kind of. Um, you know, tarnish his reputation a bit with, with, with the studio. You need to take a break. We're speaking with author Margaret Talbot about her book, The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stick around. Mm-hmm. 